8 minutes and 46 seconds, more than 400 years of oppression and racism, a countless amount of innocent black lives taken away from us much too early. You're listening to Unsweetened and Unfiltered, the podcast, episode 18 of season 2. In today's episode, we speak to Ramaz Khalil Ayel about the death of George Floyd, the racism found within our homes and our communities, and the ways we can step up and do more to make an impact. Hey, it's Danielle and Zaina, and welcome to Unsweetened and Unfiltered, the podcast where we elevate the voices of women by sharing their stories of struggle while also highlighting their success. We wanted to create a space for women to feel like they're not alone in whatever hardship they may be facing. Some conversations may be lighthearted, while others may touch upon taboo topics ranging from mental health to women's bodies and spiritual struggles, and we don't shy away from any of it. But our overall mission is to make every woman realize that she is not alone. We are all in this together, I promise. Our sole purpose is to build relationships, not barriers, between you and the woman who may need you. We're here to provide inspiration and to build courage. Tune in every Wednesday where we'll feature an insightful guest who will help us reach these goals. We laugh, we ugly cry, and we'll probably laugh some more. So plug in your headphones, grab your favorite cup of coffee or shea, and get ready to become a part of this unbreakable sisterhood. You are tuning into season two of Unsweetened and Unfiltered. Today is the two-week anniversary of the murder of George Floyd at the hands of police brutality, specifically the officer Derek Chauvin and his accomplices. And it's really hard, and I feel like these past two weeks have been an awakening for the entire world. And it's subhanAllah, it's crazy how this death, his specific death, and I don't even say death, but murder, triggered the whole entire world to wake up and realize how racism is just still thriving within the world that we live in. You know, it's it's been going on for decades, for such a long time, but I think... For 400 plus years. Exactly. And I think that the black community, rightfully so, had reached their breaking point. Like, how many people have to die in order for the world to wake up? And I was thinking about this the other day. I cannot imagine what it is like being a black mother right now. You know, like your son wants to go out and buy a bag of Skittles. He might be shot. Your son wants to wear a hoodie out, you know, just walk for a walk. Your son might, you know, get killed. Imagine the last word that your son says right before he dies at the hands of, of police brutality. He's yelling out for you. Like, I just, when I thought of that, I was like, oh, my God. Like, I, it's, it's just a hard unbelievable time right now and I'm so happy that finally people are saying you know what we're putting our foot down this is it we are not going to let one more black person die for no absolutely no reason you know a $20 counterfeit bill isn't worth a man's life again we're recording this much earlier than when we usually release this so who knows what's going to happen by Wednesday the day that we are releasing this which is the two-week anniversary so it's like Every day there are developments, but it's it's amazing to see that everybody's coming together and we're making changes and that's how it should be. But there's just so much that needs to be changed. But that does not mean that we should give up, that we are making changes, that things are happening. But at the same time, within even our own non-black Muslim community, we need to change ourselves. Oh, there's so much we work can't, that... Yeah, we can't point the finger at somebody else. We can't assume white supremacy just means you have white skin or you're a white person or you're, or you're a non-Muslim. No, no, no. There's a lot that's happening within our own community and we need to address this head on. And our special guest today is Ramaz Khal Alayel. And it's amazing because with her 
conversation, she opened our eyes to a lot, a lot that happens within our own communities, outside of our communities, and how, you know, the black community is dealing with this and their mental health and the trauma that they're facing. This is such an important conversation, like you said, because it within our own communities, racism is prevalent and it exists. And I think in order for us to see a better world that we are all you know, living peacefully and living without these atrocious murders, it has to start from within our families, within our communities. And inshallah, we can one day very soon reach a point where black people can leave their house and not fear for their own lives. And I just want to remind you guys of the verse. Indeed, Allah will not change the condition of a people until they change what is in themselves. So we, we can't just, again, blame anyone else. We have to really look within ourselves and make these changes in order to lead by example. Exactly. And we should not stand in front of the black community. We should stand beside them always. It shouldn't take for a murder like this to happen for us to always stand beside them. We should always be there to protect them, to be there with them, alongside them. Because I have yet to meet somebody who is from the black community that doesn't support the Palestinian cause. So why not all of us, on the other hand, be there and be each one of us support what's going on you know, just being anti-racist within our own communities and supporting the black community in every which way. So I really hope you guys just sit down, digest this episode, listen to it with your family members. I think this is not an episode to be listened to alone. I think the more people that listen to it, the better. These are conversations that need to be had. And I couldn't think of a better person than Ramesh to have this specific discussion with. And inshallah, we'll continuously have more black women coming on our podcast to also discuss their viewpoints of what's going on. And I think we need to really understand that every black person has their own experience. We cannot lump all their experiences as one. So just inshallah, we can continue to be allies, but also take it up a notch and also be accomplices. So you're ready to dive in, Zaina. Let's do it. Themas, what we're going to talk about today isn't something that just happened decades ago or just a few years ago, but something that we're currently in the midst of. And I know no one's been able to kind of fully digest and, and comprehend what's going on around us. So I am unbelievably grateful that you're sitting down and talking with us today. But before we get into everything that we want to discuss, do you want to go ahead and like introduce yourself to the people listening? Yeah, super grateful to be on the show. Um, I've been following you guys' work for a while and super happy that, you know, this is a conversation that you guys want to have and most importantly, engage your audience. Uh, my name is Limaz. I'm a community organizer here based in the DMV area, um, Northern Virginia, Washington, D.C. area. I've been doing this for about seven years. During my day job, uh, I work in immigration. Um, and in the evenings, I run a youth program for uh, black and brown girls. That's amazing because the last time I was on the phone with you, you said you were running a halakha. Can we talk about this youth organization? Because I don't think we often talk about such amazing organizations like this, especially that are women-led and they're for their communities, especially for the young girls too. Yeah, absolutely. So this actually came out of my desire and need to kind of like find myself. When I graduated from college, I felt like all the walls were coming in and just kind of crushing me inwards. Because I feel like a lot of times when you're in college, you can either do one of two things, find and solidify your faith, or sometimes you stray away. And I think that I wasn't necessarily building that religious identity as much as I wanted to during college. And all the issues that presented themselves, I was, you know, slowly tucking them away into boxes. And when I graduated, they're like, I'm here. <laughs> Deal with me. Yeah. So this was out of the need to find myself and the need to be back in community because there is a, um, a healing component when you're in community. 
when you share your religious identity with others, it allows for you to remedy your problems using, you know, a text that is undisputable. So, um, yeah, it, it was is beautiful. We started it right after Ramadan back in 2016. It's been four years. Every Friday we meet at the masjid and it began as a book club, but then it, it slowly expanded to so much more. We have, you know, many, many black and brown girls. We serve from, you know, Desis like Pakistanis and Kashmiris to, you know, East African girls from Ethiopia, Eritrea, Sudan. And honestly, just all the entire diversity is there in that space. But it's so profound to to have these conversations with young girls that are trying to shape their identities and and see what it, what what what's their thought process is like currently and and uh, not being able to necessarily impart advice and wisdom onto them, but to see them have conversations with one another and themselves is is a privilege that I'm honored to have weekly. That's incredible because like with our podcast, like we're not giving anybody advice. It's hard to, because I think we're all struggling with the same struggles, but there's just this sense of power knowing that you're in the same circle of women who are also struggling, but here we are, we're trying to lift one another up. And I think that's the best that we can do because everybody struggles through their experience, through their pains and in a different light and whatnot. But it's just nice to know that somebody else is there with you. What are these conversations that are being had for your holocaust, especially because of what's going on right now with the murder of George Floyd at the hands of police brutality. And you know, since this is a very diverse group of girls, what is being said within within these, you know, group chats? Yeah. This is an emotional question. Yeah, it really is. It's because I know you were very emotional when I got off the phone with you the other day. It was right after you had the discussion with yeah. them. Yeah, it's um it's hard because one of my girls was towards the end of our conversation and she's not a very emotional girl. She was stating like, I just don't understand why why this happens. It's just it's just because of our skin color. It's just because of our skin color. And she actually watched this video. This is a 14-year-old, you know, tiny little black girl. And she's like, I just don't understand. I just don't understand. Why? It's our skin color. It's just skin. It's just skin. What drives people to to regard us this way? And, you know, sometimes I I don't have the words for them, right? And sometimes, you know, it's, it's okay to let people sit with their pains for a little while so that they can, you know, feel that their pain is justifiable and that it's warranted. You know, you can't really rush someone from from one point to another because healing is not a linear process, right? It's it's very complex. So I I just listen, but I try to explain, but you know, words words don't do this any justice. So it's it's been it's been a lot of mixed feelings, but what I've also loved seeing is that the other girls in our space that are non black have been extremely supportive. And they've been extremely vocal and Towards the end of our conversation, it's like maybe they organized an exit from the combo. Maybe they just wanted it to be like a black space because one by one, I saw all the non-black girls exit the chat and then only the black girls towards the end of the chat were, were together. And I think, I feel like they did this on purpose so that, you know, even amongst ourselves, we can have a conversation that we're, we knew what was going on. You know what I'm saying? It's so important to get the youth, I think, involved in these conversations, because like you said, someone who's only 13, 14 years old, it's hard for them to understand. I mean, it's hard for me at 27 to understand what's going on. I can't imagine what a 14 year old black girl is what's going through her mind right now when she sees her people on TV getting killed by the people who are supposed to be protecting us. You know, at a young age, we're taught that police are there to serve us, to protect us. You know, if anything is ever wrong, we call the police. That's the first thing we do, call 911. And to see that our, your own people are being brutally killed 
by those same people, I, I can't even imagine what's going through her mind. But, I mean, she said it herself. Literally, there's absolutely no other reason why black people are being killed other than the color of their skin. And oftentimes we don't realize that, you know, we were fed all these microaggressions and we were taught that, you know, well, sometimes some people deserve it because they this did A, B, and C. But no, you, you don't understand the circumstances that they've been forcefully put in because of systematic racism that has been in place for hundreds of years. And I think it's, it's I commend you for also allowing her to sit in her pain because I think if you don't let somebody sit in their pain, you're almost kind of in a way normalizing the situation and you're almost telling them, well, don't cry about it. It's happening. No, but it shouldn't happen. We should cry about it. We should feel the, the, the pain of the of George Floyd's family and the many others before him that have died, that have been murdered. So I, I really commend you for having these tough conversations. And I don't think it's I don't think it's honestly easy. And you're having these conversations with everybody else, but what conversations have you been having with yourself, Ramez? Because I know a lot of black men and women are sitting there and you know when they go home from the protest or when they sign off of their social media or when they end their calls with their loved ones they're sitting with themselves and with all these emotions so what conversations have you had with yourself because of everything that has been going on and this that's a very good question i, I haven't had that question asked to me before but i think the conversations that i'm having with myself are varying conversations and each day these conversations look a, a little bit different Sometimes the conversations I'm having with myself involve, you know, my mental health. Like, what does Dimas need right now? Dimas needs to go and pray Dohar because Dohar came in yeah. about an hour ago and I need to go and pray. But then I think there's more internal conversations and those internal conversations invite me to look at parts of my identity that were vexed, that were, you know, um, told that they were in inadequate that they were told that they were unworthy, that they were told that they were not beautiful. It's inviting me to look inwards to heal and to also challenge these self-imposed ideas that unfortunately were not constructed through my own doing. They were constructed through the ideas of others and the society that I exist in and, and how I just move throughout the world. There's a lot to be unpacked here, but I'm mainly trying to focus on continuing to speak up, right? about what's going on and understanding that your message won't always be received well by some people because you know when, when when you challenge others to essentially challenge their entire being the way that in which they grew up challenge their parents challenge their society challenge their community challenge their own implicit biases it's a very uncomfortable conversation to have so sometimes i need to just you know understand that they're having this conversation it's hard they may say things that they're popping off in my inbox, but yeah. I need to understand that I, sh I shouldn't take that in. You know what I'm saying? Like, for example, there is there is a highly controversial uh, social media influencer or maybe another another title to give her would be like um, just like a writer and author. And she saw my post and was like, I would like to repost this on my page. And like, I know that her topics and her conversations, they always get a lot of hate from the Muslim world, from everyone, really. So I legit told her, and I was like, I really, I'm, I'm appreciative that you want to post this. You know, I've seen your work. I followed you. But you can only post it if you direct the hate to your page. And I was like, you need to put a disclaimer on the caption that if anyone has a problem with this, come speak to me and do not address her. That's so true. Yeah, and I, I was very proud of myself for, for being able to do that because there's just like, it's not really within, you know, our responsibilities to educate people. 
you know, but I think the Muslim thing to do has been always, you know, take the higher road, try to educate people. Well, we've been talking about this for so long. Our communities have been crying out for people to recognize that these are indeed issues that plague our community, that plague even the Muslim identity. People are frustrated, and now they're they're frustrated to no return. They're they're saying, look, like we've tried to make ourselves heard through you know carefully crafted words and you know beautifully eloquent articulated speeches and you know trying to always lower it down and you know water our words down. But now like our black bodies are being slain on the ground and. This is the future for our children if we don't speak out. This is the future for ourselves. This is the future for our Black spouses, our Black boys, our Black parents. So there is no other option but to speak and to speak about it truthfully and and wholeheartedly. And back to the this whole thing with the youth, I'm so inspired by the youth. You know, I, I, I told you, MashaAllah, Tabarakallah, this upcoming generation is so powerful. I don't know how many people that you speak to that are that are younger, like 14, 13 high schoolers, but they are beautiful. They're so eloquent, they're articulate, they're educated, and they know how to think, you know? For themselves, <laughs> which is amazing. Because when we went to school, we just, you know, went through went through the basically the daily waves yeah. and everything. Yeah, but these kids are actually thinking outside the box. They're also looking at the world and seeing what can they do to better the world and better for their own people and their community. That's so beautiful, mashallah. Fact, yeah. They're conceptualizing, like, what, what, what does change look like? Like, I had my girls break down to me how the dismantling of the police force is 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 what it ne- needs to happen and how that police officers when they first get inducted into the force you know they're corrupted by the office that they're in and i was just like listening amazed wallahi the whole time i'm listening i'm just making dua for them inshallah may allah subhanahu wa ta'ala preserve their minds their intellect and they all have this like you know potent need to change society. I feel like as we grow older, we become jaded, we become tired, but they are just full force, you know, out there speaking their truth unapologetically. And they believe in the power of change, right? Because that's, that's what we need. Like the sparing is 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 a mechanism of shaitan. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala always remind, reminds us, you know, la taqmatum rahmatullah, right? Like don't despair from mercy and the hope that is that can come from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And these girls, I mean, the guys are doing great. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> we don't want to discount them, but yeah. We don't discount them, right? But I'm I'm mainly in a circle of, of young women and they are doing, they're killing it out here. You know, they're absolutely killing it. And they inspire me, mashallah, tabarakallah, Allahumma zid wa barik. You know, and they believe in the hope, right? They believe in the hope of the society. They believe in the hope that is changed. They believe in the hope that is a brighter tomorrow and a brighter future for themselves, for their future kids, for their future spouses, and for the future world. And that is just, 
amazing. Mashallah. Mashallah. I think Gen Z gets a lot of hate, you know, but I think they're the ones that are really going to change the world. They're getting a lot of hate because they're TikTok dances, TikTok. but honestly, <laughs> they can do their TikTok dances as long as they're saving the world. And that's incredible because they're inspiring our generation of the mass. Mm, How incredible true. is it that we're the ones getting inspired? I think when we were kids, we were told like, sit down, the adults were like, sit down, we got this. But I think Gen Z is like, no, 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 we got this. Like, we're going to take charge. We're going to make the change. And I think that's exactly what we need right now coming into the new generation. I also like the point that you made them as when you told the the social media influencer, whoever it is, whatever you want to call them, that if you are taking this post and you're sharing it, you have to have these tough conversations. Don't direct these tough conversations to me. And I think that's the thing. On social media, everybody wanted to do their part, you know, intentionally or unintentionally. Everybody wants to do their part. So everybody posted what they want to post. But at the same time, I made a snap, like, do not just post blindly. Like, if there's a call to action within this post, perform that call to action. If there's, if this post is about educating the non-black community about how they're being racist, we'll have these tough conversations with your families. And I have been. And Honestly, they haven't been uncomfortable. I think a lot of people just get really nervous to talk to their families about these things, but we have to. As Muslimin, we have absolutely no choice other than to stand alongside our black brothers and sisters. Like if they, if you see an injustice happening against them, we have no other choice but to stand there alongside with you. Because as an ummah, if one part of us is hurting, you know the rest of the line. The rest of us are hurting. So how have you been having conversations, Zaina, with your family? I know you don't live directly with your family. I do. So it's been easier for me to just sit down with them. Also, one thing I want to mention, the media, we have our parents sitting in front of the TV and they're just passively kind of soaking in all the media. And honestly, I'm not saying all of the media is bad, but at the same time, not all of it is good. So we have to also have these tough conversations with our parents and basically dissect what's happening in the world and explaining it from our, our basically point of view. I think with my family, we've been getting, we, we always do these, these FaceTime sessions at night and we've been talking about what we can do within our own community. Like stop using the word Abi. That's something that my family has 100%. tried for years to you know, just completely eliminate that word from our environment and the people around us. Cause I think that word is something that it's become part of our vocabulary where it shouldn't never have been a part of our vocabulary from the very start. Um, I think also how we can help our community, like our, you know, our black communities. Cause right now we were talking about this the other day, a lot of black communities are flooded with liquor stores and it's like why right now black communities and low-income communities are food deserts there are no supermarkets they have no access to healthy nutrition food because that's not where supermarkets are going what can we do to bring that value that that nutritious values food to those communities in our small communities exactly a lot of people are setting up food drives i know in chicago today there's a ton of food drives going on in those communities because their supermarkets got looted when they were already food deserts to begin with. It's just things like that, I think, just to show our support and show that, hey, we're here, we're, we're on your side. Let us help you in the way that we know how to help you. What are your thoughts on that, Ramaz, in regards to the discussions that you've been witnessing, possibly publicly on social media that people have been having with their families or what they have been saying about the discussions that they've been having with their families? I, I, I really like what Zaina is saying. I think that's very important. And it's it's it sounds like it's a targeted approach. But I would also tell Zaina and, you know, all others that are willing, that are that are wanting to get into the space and act, and especially if they share the Muslim identity, right, with me and, and their other, you know, Muslim uh, uh, black um, friends and families, to understand the history. Because 
when you understand the history of how uh, the the African American Muslim history, when you understand that, and you're a member of the American society, you're an American citizen, you're a Muslim American citizen, your activism will be directly tied to that story, where you won't see your part, you won't see your engagement as merely helping the community. You'll see your engagement and the part that you play and the role that you want to star in as one that is absolutely vital and you will begin to make this your cause too. You know, just briefly, African African Africans that were enslaved, that were brought here to America, these same Africans were also Muslim. These du'as that these Africans made, oh Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make for my progeny, those that worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, call upon your name. These are du'as that are currently answered in our society currently. And that's that's why we have this footprint of Islam. And if you think about who who gave us Islam in this country, if you think about the the plight and the fight of African American Muslims like you know Malcolm X and and uh, W D Muhammad like all the stuff that he's done. A lot of Muslims don't even know who he is. Like American Muslims, and I would invite for you and your audience to go and look up his legacy and, and look at the footprint that he's left in this in this country. And this is what directly allows for us to outwardly worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and outwardly practice our faith. That's one thing when it comes to religion. Now let's examine why so many of us as immigrants are actually have the ability to come into America. The 1965 Immigration Act is literally a direct result from the civil rights movement. And that act is what, you know, diversified our quota. It is, it's what expanded our quota and minimized the quota from, from immigrants coming from the Western Hemisphere and opened it to sub-pockets of populations from, you know, uh, places where we hadn't had much immigration from. So all of like the Daisies, all of the Arabs, all of the Africans, every single person that crosses America's shores and comes in pursuit of the American dream and liberty, life and happiness should understand that unequivocally that mere right to exist here, that mere right to seek an education here, that mere right to open up that corner store is a direct result of what African-Americans have done and died for. If you go into this world operating with just those two knowledges on your shoulders, I can practice my Islam because of what African-Americans have done for me mm -hmm. and that right that they've given me. And my family and I's legacy to be here in America was made directly due to African-Americans' plight and fight for, for our freedoms. You operate in this world so much more than an ally. You literally see it like, you know, subhanAllah, if you needed a kidney and I gave you my kidney, right? I can tell you, you know, like in the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us, you know, لا نريد منكم جزاء ولا شكورا Whenever نحن نضعمكم لوجه الله لا نريد منكم جزاء ولا شكورا For we feed you for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala We do not want from you جزاء, which is reward أو شكورا, which is thanks So I might continue to operate in this world with humility, right? And not really question or make you feel indebted to me However, I gave you my kidney Exactly. So you're gonna spend your whole life if you if you as my neighbor and I gave you my kidney and you know that my house is on fire or my kids are dying in the streets or my husband is being put on the ground and, and arrested and murdered just for his skin color, you're gonna fight like there's no tomorrow. And that's the energy we need and that's why we're so frustrated. You know, black American uh, African American Muslims in the state are frustrated 
because they're just like these people are operating and they're discriminating against us they're talking in their homes using these slurs they're they're merely performing you know a performative form of allyship so it's absolutely you know ridiculous and and, and we can't seem to understand it so i would say first and foremost is equip yourself with the knowledge there's there's actually a a, a course right now that's been made free you know go check it out it's by um dr uh, sherman and he has a course and i think it's uh i, f- I forget the institute i want to say Bayina, but probably not it's another one but i'm happy to provide you guys with that information and it literally tells you about the entire african-american muslim history in this country and it just goes into it definitely has modules and you can graduate with like a certificate so there's there's there that's where your education should start you know I wanted to say that like I went to both public and private schools and everything that you're saying right now I didn't I wasn't taught and it's really disappointing because you put so much trust in the education system and then once you go up and you realize they only teach you a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of what really went on and it's really disappointing but like you said there are the resources out there at 27 I can learn more now than I did back in those 12 years of school that I attended Exactly. Because I think for the longest, we haven't understood our privilege as non-black Muslims. I think like for me, I'm just such a strong Palestinian. But you know what? If I'm going to a grocery store, nobody, nobody's going to know that I'm Palestinian. They're going to assume that I'm just a white passing person. They're going to they're going to confuse me for some other ethnicity. But when you're a black person, you're not going to get confused. They look at right away. They look at your skin and that's all they see. And I think as Muslims, we have to understand that and we have to be able to stand beside the black community and not in front of them. I think sometimes we want to do we want to do good and we want to help the black community, but that's the thing. Like you don't want us to be of aid to you, but just to stand beside you, just to see us as one. And I think sometimes we kind of falter and it's almost like we become like the echo of the white supremacy. It's almost like we echo all their microaggressions within our own communities and we don't even know that we're doing it. And sometimes we actually are conscious of what we're doing and what we're saying that we start to speak on behalf of the black community rather than being the echo of the black community and speaking on behalf of white supremacy and telling them, no, this is not right. This is not what we stand for. As Muslims, we have to stand with the black community and be there for our brothers and sisters. Kind of like overcompensating. Yeah, we are. We're overcompensating. And sometimes that's actually causing more harm than good when we do try to overcompensate. Yeah, I I see what you're trying to say there, like um, regarding just overcompensating. And sometimes I think you, you know, eloquently put it in our previous conversation you know, kind of serving sometimes as a pawn to serve to uh, further white supremacy. I think if you truly want to be an ally, it starts in the house. That's number one where it starts. It starts inward. It starts with challenging and the, yourself. And this is why I speak so much about the implicit bias. Because once you're aware and once you're informed and once you're armed with, you know, education and you understand truly the big picture of it all and the full scope of what this machine, this white supremacy machine looks like, you will move differently. You will begin to try to center black voices in everything you do. You would be going into the grocery store and you might see someone, an African-American person shopping or something, and you already are equipped with the knowledge, look, this person is perceived by many in the space as a threat and as a danger. So I'm not going to go and approach them, but I'm going to be on the lookout if anyone tries to approach them or anyone tries to harm them or make them feel a certain way, I'm going to step up. I'm going to make myself an ally. Do you remember how when there was a lot of like, uh, this was a few years ago, there was a campaign. It was called Hate a Muslim Day. I don't know if yes, you guys remember this. I did. And I tried not to even post that flyer, to be honest. It was it was pretty scary. Yeah. 
Yeah, there was, and then a lot of Muslims were, were especially like uh, physically and you know visibly veiled women were very afraid of going onto onto the streets. And there was a lot. There was like a counter campaign, and some women were saying, "Look, you know, wear a safety pin on your shirt." And if another Muslim woman sees a safety pin, then she knows that you're an ally. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's it's powerful, at least to me. I think that's powerful. But just operating on that basis or all of us, and I'm pretty sure some of your viewers hold positions of leadership in their companies and continue to hire black people, right, and put them in, in positions of upper management. And, and then even in our own masajid, let's begin to incorporate some African-Americans and, and black Muslims into those spaces. It starts inward, but it, 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 there, there has to be a call of action. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reminds us that he's not going to change the condition of a society until we change what's within ourselves. And this is why I am emphasizing the self part. Because once the self part is transformed, once the self part is enlightened, once the self part is aware, you cannot simply exist in any space like you used to. To not exist as a full-blown advocate is to be to deny your own humanity, to deny and betray yourself, subhanAllah. So uh, I, I think it starts inward, and I think it starts with having these conversations with family and friends, and and then beginning to do what Zaina mentioned, and and, and lots more, because we need we need to all be united to end this. Exactly. That's why we can't just passively repost and reshare these things that we're seeing on social media. We have to ourselves change before we're going into our homes of our families and telling them you need to change. Well, we have to lead by example. You can't tell your parents, don't say this word, don't do this, don't do that. But yet you're still kind of, you know, faltering and doing those same actions. And I think a lot of people... Maybe like for me, it was easier to have these conversations for my with my family, but other people may not, the conversations may not be easy. Their parents might return with the aggressive tone and tell them, you can't tell us what to do. We've been saying this for this long and we're not doing anything wrong. I think we need to understand that more than one conversation needs to be had. We can see with, with what's going on in the world, like things are, cannot be changed overnight. It takes time. It really does take time to get everybody on board. And sometimes with your parents, with your loved ones, family, friends, everybody, it's going to take time. So if you truly love this person and you truly care for your family and you see them slowly changing, be there for them. I think a lot of people just want to cut their family dry, but it's like now you're just cutting them off and now they think that what they're doing is still right. Just because you cut them off doesn't mean that they're not going to do any harm to anybody outside of you. So that's the whole purpose of us continuing these conversations um, and to keep them going. And I think that even if they are aggressive, just don't be aggressive back because then it ends up being a shouting match. We, we need to get this point across. This is something serious. We're talking about actual black lives that are at risk every single day. And for us to just have these conversations with our families is a privilege in itself that we're not experiencing what the black community is experiencing. But at the same time, the pain that they're feeling that we should also take on this pain. We should also take on this burden because it, it's not even truly a burden. I mean, it, we should really care to that point where we, we can't fathom seeing our black community hurting as much as they're hurting today. And all you guys are asking us is not to say the word Abid, to not just, you know, create liquor stores and more addictions within the community, to stand beside you guys. This is th These are not crazy asks. As a Muslim, this is something that comes standard. Yeah, and you know why we're asking for people to refrain the usage of this word? Yes. Because it's not just a word, right? It's 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 an ideology. You know, words are powerful. And 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 we're we're so frustrated why some people don't understand why some people aren't speaking out. These same people that aren't that don't understand and that aren't speaking out are the same ones using these words in their homes interchangeably. And when you use these words, you dehumanize, right? Let, let me just give you a quick lesson on genocide. 
the actual physical taking of life is one of the last stages of genocide. It happens right before the denial. There's a there's a professor and a scholar, Gregory Stanton. He talks about the stages of genocide. But some of the first few stages involve symbolization. It involves dehumanization. It involves all of these mechanisms where what you're basically trying to do is remove any semblance of worth, you know, yes. from that individual, from that category. How were the Hutus and the Tutsis able to eliminate one another? These are people that lived with one another. They were neighbors. Some of them were partners. Some of them were family members. But they were only able to do this because one group painted the other as one undeserving of life. So that's essentially what you're doing when you're calling and regarding people as Abid. Abid or Abid is basically a servant, and we know a servant, a slave. Slaves usually don't have rights. Slaves are not worthy. Just look at how we, what slave slavery means in this country. You're basically saying, you're calling them this word, and subconsciously, you're allowing these titles to be attached to their identity. Unworthy, uneducated, violent, a thug, all of these things. And you've just equated them and you've made their identity synonymous with violence, synonymous with, you know, unworthiness. And then now when something as big as this happens in our society, we see a black man slain on the ground. You, Yeah, you can say, I could care less. But when you see, you know, someone from, that resembles your own community, someone from Syria, someone from Palestine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you're like, oh my God, ya lahwi. Mm-hmm. I can't believe this is happening. You're enraged, but you need to understand that that somatic response, that physical response that's generated in your body, which moves you to act, is not one that just comes about. The reason why that energy and that somatic response was not exhibited when you saw a black man slain on the ground begging for his mama, begging to breathe, is because you've been using this word, and this word has solidified the reason in your mind that these lives don't matter. So when we're asking, don't use these words, we're not just saying, don't use these words. Understand what these words mean and understand what, what using these words allow, for, allow to your, your brain to happen. It confuses you and it, it makes you think of this certain way. That's why we're asking for people to cease using these words. We haven't even started talking about the racism in, in, in Arab countries or in, in Arab majority countries. We, ha- we're, we haven't even started there. There have been so many people contacting me with their own personal stories and what they've experienced and endured. And those are ones that, you know, I, they're just wallahi so much. And, and, and again, like, I am hopeful. I feel like this is a, a worldwide movement currently. A lot of people are speaking about this. And a lot of people are inspired to get out there and, and to go in words and, and change things, right? Do you feel like this is the first time the world is actually finally listening? Even though it looks subconsciously, we know what the heck is going on. But finally, we're awakening to how horrible and how bad this has gotten. Yes, I do, actually. I feel a different types of energy here. And I've been out here with Eric Gardner. I've been out here with Trayvon Martin. But there has been, wallahi, I have goosebumps as I state this. But it's been a different type of energy. I've been reading some articles this morning. And this is being dubbed the largest like civil rights march you know, in, in, in the history of our of our of the world. I, I do feel a different energy, but I wanna say like this energy didn't just come on about, right? It's been this these conversations have been happening. We've been highlighting this. We've been angry. And now subhanAllah people are like, dang, you know what, they're talking about this enough. I guess I can kinda try to see it now. And it, i wanna highlight that 
there is a lot of racism happening within the auto community and it's these conversations do need to be had actions need to be taken and i went to a black lives matter rally at my own masjid and it was powerful it was powerful because i got to see a masjid that you know of course i look up to this is a masjid i grew up in this is a masjid i've been going to since i was little so it's it's powerful to finally see our leaders within our masjid to say something you know who's to say what they're doing behind the scenes you know some messages maybe haven't spoken up but they're doing things behind the scenes but I, I i do believe there is power in speaking up some people don't feel that way they feel like sometimes you don't have to speak up you can do a lot of things behind the scenes but i feel when you speak up yesterday there was a just a great number of people in the parking lot of the masjid and our our sheikh jamal made us put our hands up in the air and solemnly swear to never use the word abid to solemnly swear to always put people in their place if he heard people say, I mean, I, I have videos, I'll send it to you, Damaz. And it's incredible because it's like, yes, this is what we need. This is what we need because maybe sometimes the elders of the community, and I'm not saying this is all on them, but maybe they always found the word Abid to be okay. They normalized it, and we should have never normalized it in the first place, but they normalized it. But here they, them too, they they look up to the sheikh, and he's telling them, do not use this word. I'm letting you know right now, do not use this word. And we also to talked about the liquor stores within the, uh, the black communities and that are found in the convenience stores of Arab. We talked about all this within the parking lot of our masjid. And I was like, this is what we need. This is exactly what we need them as. It's so true because this is the first time I'm seeing this. I'm being able to personally witness my masjid say something about this. And it was just an incredible feeling. And it was all non-blacks. There were, of course, black community members there that also spoke on the stage, which was incredible. But I love that the majority of the audience were people that, yes, I grew up with. And it's like, we're all hearing this and we need to hear this together. You know, I agree with you where sometimes, okay, things are going on behind the scenes. But as community leaders, I do feel like they have to make that public stance because people, like you said, are following them, are looking up to them, are, you know, looking up for them to for advice and how to act within the community. And once they see those leaders actively and, and publicly, you know, say, hey, this is wrong, this is what we need to do. I think that's the stance that we need to see more of. Yeah, we shouldn't be aggressive in that stance, but I just appreciate my masjid for being able to recognize that there is a plague in our community. You can't deny the fact that racism exists within our own community. It's just so hypocritical of us to call ourselves Muslims, but Muslims are not racist. But you as as a Palestinian, as somebody from Pakistan or Indian can be racist. You can be racist. But if you're a true, true believer of Allah, this is somebody who spoke on this yesterday on the stage. You cannot be racist if you're truly a true believer and you're really, truly Muslim. And that was powerful because sometimes we need that reality check. We can't call ourselves passively Muslim, but then we're not acting Muslim. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've I've seen some um, some African American Muslims or just Black Muslims say that I'm so glad I found Islam first before I met the Muslims. Mm, wow, that's deep. And that's very very saddening, because it just shows you like how much racism exists. And there's so much racism within our own masjid. Like I've had people write to me experiences of being asked to leave the masjid because this was a, a predominantly white Arab masjid disgusting are you kidding me wow Wallahi alazim. or some some one woman wrote me and she said when she walked into the masjid no one greeted her it was during ramadan they all ate it all broke their fast it was her first time she looked up a mosque went to the mosque and no one even gave her food to break her own fast they don't want to they don't want to stand shoulder to shoulder next to you foot to foot but once again i will go back to the need for education right earlier we spoke on the need for, to understand the Muslim American story and how that was given to us by African Americans and the need to understand that our own immigration story 
was a direct result of the civil rights movement. But here, my challenge, and what I have to say here is, people need to understand how African Muslims were inherent to the global story of Islam. The Prophet's mom, mother who nursed him was from Abyssinia, right? Mm -hmm. The woman Hajar, whom we commemorate her actions when we go to Hajj, when we go between the Safa and the Marwa and we drink the Zamzam water, that was a black woman. So here you are commemorating what Hajar did, going back and forth between Safa and Marwa, and you can carelessly, you know, carelessly throw this word Abid in your households and refuse a, bl a black man when he comes to marry your daughter or refuse, you know, uh, uh, your, da your, your son to marry a black woman, right? Because of these stereotypes. I think it's, it's, it's important. It's absolutely important that we understand how African Muslims have shaped what we have of Islam. And then again, the story will change once more. You will no longer see yourself playing an ally, but you'll see yourself truly acting on what is Islam and what is told to us of Islam. And you know, subhanAllah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reminds us, He says, if you hate something, change it with your hand. And if you hate something, you cannot change it with your hand. Because here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is directly asking us to act our, or with the physical faculties of our bodies. If you cannot act on it, He says, speak about it. And if you cannot speak about it, then hate it with your heart. And that is the weakest of Iman. To hate something with your heart is the weakest of Iman. If you want to be a true Muslim, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is asking you to act on the injustices. So we're, what we're trying to do is we're trying to get people right now to hate it with their hearts. We're trying to get people to basically perform the weakest of Iman. And that's where it's so frustrating. But it doesn't end there. If you now begin to recognize like, look, this is an injustice and I hate that this is happening to my black Muslim brothers and sisters, my black sisters and brothers across the world, then begin to speak on it because that's the second part. And then begin to act on it because that's the third part. It's so absolutely crucial for us to do that. That, that brings me to the idea of like, as a Muslim, inherently, we should be allies. That should be the bare minimum, is to be an ally. And I think all of us are just promoting this, oh, allyship. And I, I like that. That's a great, that we have to be that. That's the bare minimum. But I think it's being a, an accomplice where we take it to the next step. The step that we should already be at. It's sad and it's unfortunate that black brothers and sisters have to convince the Muslim community to hate it with their hearts when that should already be in there. That hate should already be in our hearts, the hate against racists and whatnot. It's how can we become accomplices? That's the next step that we should have already been at, but hey, we're not at it. Maybe not all of us are there yet, but how do we get there? And there's a plenty full of resources online that, that will teach us how to get there. Even donating. We donate thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars during Ramadan to so many organizations, to so many um, countries overseas and whatnot. Let's also invest within our black community and that's something I think subconsciously we haven't been doing. Like consciously, we need to start doing this. We need to. And while we're having these conversations at Amaz within our own communities, and while we're trying to change everything, and not trying, while we have to change everything within our own communities, what advice do you have for young black men and women right now that are listening and listening to the news and understand what's going on? How, are, how can you teach them to build a barrier where they do not internalize this hate? Because when you really think about it, they're truly being killed for simply the color of their skin. Nothing more and nothing less. Literally, it's just the color of their skin. How do you teach them and what do you tell them to build this strong barrier between them and the hate that they should never, ever internalize or try not to internalize? It's a, that's a very beautiful question. And it's one that I've thought often about. And it's one that I'm still trying to find an answer to. 
because you know at, at different stages of your identity and it, it looks differently but i think ultimately i think black brothers and sisters need to realize that we exist in a society that if not only founded on colonialism and not only founded on uh, not only founded on colonialism it's also found on capitalism this is there's there's so there's is a trillion dollar industry trillions of dollars industry that's that is out there that is specifically targeting our black identity there is the, the whole skin bleaching cream that's there's money to be made there there's the you know loosen the curls make them straight kind of industry there's money to be made there there's this whole concept of um, it's called the the politi- the politics of the undeserving poor there's so much money to be made on people whom we've classified in our society as as inferior. And once you, you can create this classism kind of mind frame, you can literally manipulate the entire globe. Because one person will always see themselves better. The, Desi, the Arab will see himself better than the Desi. The Desi will see himself better than the black person. The African black person will see themselves better than the West African the West African will see himself better than the African American. It's like a continuous cycle of one group we've classified as inferior and one group that we've classified as superior. And especially those of us living in America, we need to understand that all of the systems and all of the institutions founded in this country were made to serve, implement, and preserve whiteness. So being armed with that knowledge going into this world, you you can understand and say, hey, these commercials, they're basically done this way because I have to kind of undo all the learning and I have to undo all the things in my subconscious that have made me believe that I'm inadequate, that I am not deserving of love, that I am not deserving of all to, to be to be able to live my life as as a whole person, not like two thirds of a person, according to our constitution, where they classified the black man as two thirds of a human being. And where when people decide to love us, it's not like they're doing us a favor. Because that's kind of sometimes, oh, mashallah, you know, mashallah, how did your family react to when you decided to marry a black man? Oh, mashallah, you're not, you're not doing us a service by loving us. We're human beings. So to my black brothers and sisters, you are not a second class citizen. You're the first class citizen. You, you, you come from a lineage of kings and queens. You come from a lineage of beauty. You come from a lineage of authenticity. You come from a lineage of richness. So don't don't be a pawn. Don't allow people to to make you self hate. Don't allow people to continue to negate your identities and the the uh, the multiple identities that you have. You are beautiful. You are capable. You are smart. And just go out there, speak your truth. And there's so many other people in the world that are beginning to wake up and recognize the beauty that is you. That's what I would have to say right now. Yeah, and I'm sure that internal hate begins as an adolescent because like you look at these makeup companies that only produce you know shades up until like tan and then like two shades for black people and then you go to the you know sephora and you're like but what about me like what about my skin tone why don't you why aren't you guys calling or making products that that fit my skin tone and i think for decades a lot of people kind of will like pass it on like oh it was, it's okay no one's complaining but at least from what I'm seeing on social media in the last few years, people are calling makeup companies out and they're calling for change. And a lot of the companies are actually now stepping up and saying, yeah, we messed up. Here are all the colors that we can make. And like, I'm, how did you feel as a, as a kid growing up and seeing that in, in the beauty industry, for example? 
No, that's 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 a very good valid point. I think what makeup companies are ultimately communicating when they only have two shades of black is that we don't really care about you. And then once again, it's basically saying your life doesn't matter. We don't care if you have access to this and and so and and so forth. And I think growing up as a kid, I saw a lot of like skin bleaching creams and all these commercials with fair and lovely and you know the need to to whiten yourself. Even like I come from Sudan and that that was that's something that's there i know that there's a huge movement especially with you know there's new tra- tra- transitional government and there's new thoughts and there's 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 a lot of new energy appreciating our black identity but to be to go into stores and you know to see these kind of things where there isn't your shade or to to have aunts back home that are <laughs> cousins that are like oh you'd look so much more beautiful if you were a few shades lighter you know, like those things hurt me, but you know, I'll, I'll be quite honest, that hasn't been my experience entirely. I think growing up in America has shielded me a lot from from these things. Had I lived in Sudan, I feel like there would have been a lot more pressure to want to bleach myself because that's very much normalized there. Like when a woman's getting ready to get married, she gets all the skin bleaching creams. Wow. <laughs> and yeah, I, I know that this is true to even non, non-black non sisters. Yeah, I know that, you know, our, our mothers or, you know, for even the adults, like their parents are like, don't go outside, you're going to get dark. Exactly. You know, you, you've, you've returned a raisin. What's wrong with the raisins? What's wrong with having dark skin? But I think like being in America, I feel like, that part of my identity, I was w- wasn't impacted as much because I grew up in a household where skin bleaching creams were not used. I didn't have access to extended family that used these products or followed these 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 beauty regimens. You know, I, I feel like I was able to cultivate at least the beauty of my skin on my own from seeing like you know black artists and and people that looked beautiful just in the skin that they were in. I think it's so powerful when you are comfortable enough to show up in, with your full self in any space, whether it be work, school, public settings, and whatnot. And I think all of us struggle with that. But it, for us, it's it's not the same struggle as you, black the black community because you wear your identity proud and it's beautiful. But for us, it's like we can be white passing. We're closer to the white proximity with our skin tone. So I think it's beautiful when seeing somebody like you Maz, just being proud of who you are and where you come from i think you honestly inspire a lot of young girls you truly truly do because it's nice to see that it's nice to see somebody that's older than you that is proud of who they are and they're comfortable in showing up in their full self and their full identity wherever they go and i know that's something that you might still like you know still struggle with everybody does not every setting is very welcoming we know that sometimes and it, it sometimes it goes beyond that it's not just the welcoming it's the harm that can be placed upon you because of the way you look we've seen what happened to george Floyd and the murder and everything so that's why I think it's just important to hear inspiring voices like you and to be able to pass that down to younger girls and even young boys too you know what I mean but one thing that I want to talk about is just the mental health within the black community is this something that is actively talked about or is this something that isn't because of the fact of the matter is you guys are dealt with one trauma after the next after the next and there is no downtime for healing and it's it's truly sad it's heartbreaking no, I think that's definitely a conversation that's beginning to happen. And I think it's a conversation that needs to continue. It needs to be daily. Absolutely. Mental health is super important because we don't really necessarily get a break. You know, even after these protests and after this movement, we continue, we go back to being black. 
you know, while other people can go back into their respective lives and, you know, and don't have to navigate the world like we do with the microaggressions, the macroaggressions, those that are, you know, subtle or avert forms of discrimination. I think mental health is super important and I think it's it's critical during this time. And when we do see, uh, you know, uh, videos such as this or hear stories of police brutality, it's not something that's solely triggering. It's absolutely traumatizing. Like a quick story that happened to me yesterday morning. I woke up determined and I was like, look, today's going to be the day where I have a full meal and where I'm going to try to take care of myself because I need to, because I'm unraveling at the seams. So I went downstairs and I made breakfast. I recently went vegan. So it oh, takes wow. me a little it <laughs> takes me a little while to cook, right? So I made my full-on vegan breakfast. I called my brother, because he's also a black man, and I was like, come have breakfast with me. We're sitting at the table, eating our little vegan sausages, our tofu eggs. Nice. <laughs> and our vegan waffles. And we're, we're like, look, let's uh, do what we did when we were younger. Watch cartoons, Saturday morning cartoons. So here we are playing an episode of Jackie Chan. Wow. You know, you guys familiar with Jackie Chan? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> we're watching Jackie Chan, and this is one of the first episodes from the cartoon show where the Dark Hands Enforcer is trying to discipline his little minions for not being able to catch Jackie Chan, who is, you know, an archaeologist. Like, how are you not able to, you know, you have yeah. all these skills and all these weapons. So he calls for Toru, which is like this big sumo wrestler, to come and discipline his minions. So Toru comes and Toru picks up the little minions and he squeezes them, chokes them, and the three minions utter at the same time, I can't breathe. <sighs> That's hard. Wallahi, when we heard that, Wallahi, my brother dropped his fork, I dropped mine, and he just looked at me and he was like, that was triggering. And I literally like, I just started crying because here we are, we think that this is a safe space. Cartoons, Saturday morning cartoons and yummy vegan food is going to at least, this is what I, this is the least that I know what I'm doing, but there is so much trauma and there's so much PTSD that will manifest itself today, tomorrow, and in all of our lives. And this is what, and this is this is what I experienced as a 26 year old. Imagine what kids are experiencing, and imagine the continued intergenerational trauma that will begin to show up in various parts of their identities and various parts of their lives. So disconnect to my black youth and my black brothers and sisters. Disconnect when you need to. I have friends that are also that also share the black identity with me, and they're not being on the front lines right now. Their front lines look a little differently. One of my friends, Maka, you should follow her. She also has a podcast. Oh, nice. Maka, she, she had on her, the way that she does it is that she's actually reviewing um, Disney movies. She's reviewing, uh, she's cr- doing a uh, critique um, on Disney movies. And that's how she's getting through this. I have another friend of mine, Halima Jama, who is a, a Somali Canadian photographer. And the way that she's getting through this is through a segment called Black Joy, where she comprises all these little videos and and photos of black people just being authentically beautiful and happy. And that's her form of mental health and healing. And that actually does something to your mood. That really does, doesn't it? Isn't it nice to see people? Because some people are critiquing, critiquing the black community, like, oh, how are they happy and joyful when this is going on? Well, Jesus Christ, let them live. Let them at least like have some joy in this traumatic moment. You know what absolutely. I mean? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You, I should not hear that critique at all. No. These mm-hmm. are how some people are, even that in itself, 
is a form of resistance because you're trying to push down the idea for me that every single time a black man dies or we hear these stories that the only emotion I can exhibit as a black person is pain and trauma. No, this continues to happen to my identity. And today I'm going to choose to move forward by exhibiting some sort of joy. While now you can go as the ally and do the work, go stand on the front lines. Let me experience my joy. For everybody's different. For me, I have to talk about what's upsetting me. I have to march. And with Corona, it's been a little different. But all of us, we're not, you know, this, you know, homogenous, you know, entity. We're all different and we all have varying levels of our identities, right? Where we all have varying identities and we experience pain differently. And we also experience, you know, mental health healing differently. Absolutely. You know, what's, what's, this might be a whole nother conversation, but what's disappointing and what I've learned recently is, you know, these uh, schools in like black communities aren't really, they don't have the access to counselors and therapists in schools like maybe me and Dunya did. And so black kids don't, they're not taught at an early age and as they go on through adulthood, how to deal with those emotions, how to deal with their mental health. Or how prioritize to... their mental health. Exactly. Yeah. They're kind of, they kind of shove it to the side because they haven't been taught how to deal with it. And I think that's something that when, you, when you're taught as a little kid that your mental health isn't important, you're going to continue to hold that as you go through adulthood. And I think that's something that really does need to be addressed right now. Or just even the resources. Like there's a lot that's taking up the headspace of the black community right now. There's a lot that has happened. But do they have even the proper resources to be able to actually focus on what's going on in their, what's taking up all their headspace right now? How to just examine it, how to dissect it, how to understand what, like, what's triggering for them, what's traumatic for them, what is something that they haven't been able to sit down with at this moment? There's a lot that is missing from the black community, and I, and I think that's an issue. That's why I, I'm a big proponent of donating, of donating to funds, being able to help with resources such as these, and to just help as much as you can. And I think with this conversation, you've taught us so much them as and I think you know sometimes we look and we feel defeated because we're like oh my god how are we supposed to change the mind of every single person in this world because at the same time as we're seeing these killings we also see the the white supremacy just loud and proud and they're just basically out there and they're showing off their guns and they're basically saying we're here to say and you're not changing our mind and I think sometimes that that makes us feel defeated but we should never feel defeated. As long as we know that we're working towards a better world, that's what really truly matters. I think that's the one thing that we should hold on to. It's that when we give up, that's that's the problem right there. That's what we should be really fearful of, is that we're that when we're giving up. It's not that having to change millions of people around the world. It will change. It's, this isn't all Allah's plans. Whatever Allah's right. planning for us, inshallah, it's, it's something for the greater good. And, and I think that we have to just continue to believe it. And I love how you always said just to center our faith in everything. And if we truly censored our faith, there would be so many issues eliminated around the world. Is there anything that you want to leave off um, with, Ramaz, in regards to just what's going on in the world or what other advice that you may have? Yeah, I just wanted to speak quickly on the point that Zaina made regarding like um, not having access to these resources. We need to understand that this is all; these are all remnants of redlining. If we go into our history and we learn more about redlining and how these boundaries were created and these th these were drawn, right, allowing certain resources to go to certain communities and black kids couldn't go to white schools, white kids couldn't go to black, black schools, all of these are continuing remnants of the system. So the reason why they don't have these resources is structural violence. You know, when I was an undergrad, I did an internship with the Washington Nationals uh, baseball team. And 
they actually um, gentrified the area that was predominantly black African-Americans. They lived in Anacostia. And Anacostia is the, the, the poorest neighborhood, the, the poorest area in Washington, D.C. When it comes to opportunities, the lack of opportunities, they're exhibiting all of it. Food deserts, they have no grocery stores. Even bike lanes. The city has not allocated bike lanes. There's no buses. So you're asking people that don't have grocery stores to go to work. They don't even have buses to go to, to go to work with. They don't even have lanes on the streets to ride their bikes in. So, and then they go to these schools that don't have these resources. So all of this comes back again to a structural issue. And in order for us to tackle those, it's a structural issue. There was one guy that became famous and I saw his story on Ellen a few years ago. And he was like this Ivy League graduate, uh, educated uh, white kid. And he moved from, I think, California and moved to D.C. to teach at some of these underserved schools because he knew that with his connections and with his privilege, he could offer him the best that he, he can. So we don't have to be activists only on the, the, the front lines, but we can use our professions and offer that to black communities. If you're someone who can code, go into the school and code. Yeah. If you're a physician, offer monthly you know clinics like come check people's blood pressures talk to them about health and nutrition whatever it is that you have in your community you know from your upbringing from your education background from your professional background you can pour that and that's how you can be an ally that way here you're not only working on on changing the condition of your heart which is the weakest of faith and you're looking inward but you're actually beginning to take an action you're beginning to speak out on the matter and that's what how ultimately we're supposed to be. As Muslims, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reminds us, he says, the best of deeds are those that are done small and consistent. Mm. It's not big and at one time, which is what we're seeing a lot. It's like people are speaking about this, but it's just now. So if you want to be the best of Muslims and you want to follow what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has outlined for you when it comes to activism and, and fighting the good fight for justice and equality, do these things small but consistent. Don't stop. This is the time now. This is the Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will call you on the day of judgment and will ask you and say, this was injustice. What did you do? And for the youth listening, Allah promises the youth, one of the seven people that have, you know, the shade of, of, of gods on a day in which there is no shade. On Yawm Al-Qiyamah is a youth that, that lived right, rightfully, right? A, a youth that lived fighting for justice, a youth that, you know, used their voice to change this world. That's subhanAllah, because I, I just feel like it's a surreal moment. You have to really sit down and think about this. Like this is a moment in history that's happening right now. We're always critiquing past histories. We're always critiquing past movements that have happened, but what are we doing right now? And that's a question that's being asked of us. What are we truly doing? Because this is something that's going to be written for years to come. This is something that our future kids are going to be taught about. And we're going to be sitting there with them and we have to tell them, what did we do? How did we acknowledge what, what happened? What steps did we take? What action steps did we take? And what was the outcome? Because you always want an outcome. You can't just let it fall flat and just let it go. Let it slip between your fingers and slip between the cracks. All this work that it needs to be done because so that we don't have another George Floyd. So we don't see another headline with another black person dying for a senseless killing at the hands of police. You know what I mean? This all needs to stop. And it's, it's very triggering for the black community. And I apologize on behalf of us who are from the non-black community that made you feel less than. That should have never ever happened. You guys have, should never have ever gone through something like this. I apologize for the ambulances in the background. It's just going to be like this and throughout the episode, basically, probably. But I just really, really, truly want to apologize to Maz. But I also want to thank you from the bottom of my heart 
for blessing us with your presence because mashallah we've followed you for quite some time and i've seen how you were even through what happened in sudan and it's just incredible the way you just that your perspective and how you approach things and it's just so peaceful but it's so educating i just love i learned so much from you i truly truly do and yeah when you said you were only 26 i was like wow mashallah yeah, like the way you shape, talk is yeah. so eloquent and, and beautiful exactly. and i could listen to you forever uh-huh. mashallah mashallah i just feel like well it is it's true it's our youth you might not feel like a youth but to me i feel much older but mashallah it is like it's it's, it's we're the same age. i'm 31 girl i wish i was 26 again i would change so much i just feel like but alhamdulillah like just i really really want to thank you and i want to thank every other woman beside you and every uh, every other person within your community that is just doing the work and getting your voices heard and inshallah ya Rab, this is the first and last time the world world has to awaken to this and actually do something about it thank you so much ramaz thank you and thank you ladies for having this conversation something that's absolutely super needed and uh, just keep on just keep on the good fight inshallah thank you so much Rimez is someone who truly opened, I think, all of our eyes to what's really going on behind the surface, things that we didn't learn in school, things that we weren't taught as kids, things that we're learning in our late 20s, early 30s. And it's sad that we have to learn it now. But the fact that people are being aware of this stuff right now, I think is so crucial. And something that we talked about was internalizing hate. We talked about, you know, these makeup companies, these cosmetic companies putting out colors that don't adhere to the black skin uh, women. And so my thing is, and we talked about this off mic, was, you know, they're not producing colors that, that uh, match black skin uh, colors. They're not, you know, making makeup specifically for black women. Yet our white counterparts can go get spray tan. They can, um, you know, go get lip uh, fillers to half full of voluptuous lips. They're literally braiding their hair to mimic what the African-American women and the black women in our communities are doing. So that's the part that I just don't understand. You you want them to hate themselves. You want to put them themselves down, but yet you want to mimic exactly what they're doing. Imagine being shamed for the skin that you're in while seeing your white counterparts and others stealing your identity and making money off of it. And that's why it does tie into capitalism. This is all systematic, but it's also capitalistic. And we forget that. We forget that we also buy into these things. And sometimes, you know, I, I have a friend who's so incredible. Her name is Nadia. And I love how she raised her, her kids. She doesn't raise them to call black people abid they've never ever said that she's never said that she does not condone it in their household imagine being a young child and never hearing that word so that's how we need to raise our kids to be like that and not only that but when she we were just discussing this because again these are conversations that need to be had within our homes within our friend group within every with within any circle that you find yourself in we also discussed the notion of how when she goes shopping with her daughter her daughter chooses black barbie dolls and she's like that's normal and that's the thing as non-black, out of Muslims, whoever you are, we should normalize that. I felt like when I was young, yeah, I've never, ever had a black Barbie doll. I don't think I did. And it's not intentional, but at the same time, it's all these microaggressions that you're taught at a young age. I'm not saying this came from my parents. Of course not. But it's just like we need to allow our kids to be able to normalize people that do not look like them. Like it's okay to like you know befriend somebody to learn about somebody that doesn't look like you and to have black barbie dolls to have books with black authors and black characters we don't have that to watch disney movies with black you know yeah. cartoons absolutely and i think and nadia is a great mom and i always She's admire the way mashallah. that she she mashallah but i think as a kid you know you hear the word abid in your household and it becomes synonymous with black people 
obviously kids don't know the meaning, but you know what I mean? If you're teaching them at a young age, that that word does not leave the tip of our mouth, that it's okay, you choose whatever Barbie doll you want, choose the one that's prettiest to you. And if they grab that black Barbie doll, amazing, you know what I mean, that's incredible. And it, and it racism starts at a, such a young age and they pick up the traits that we as adults are exercising and they pick that up as normal because if while well, mom and baba are doing it, that means it's okay. So I think the way that we raise our kids now more than ever, I think we have to be very cautious and, ex- and lead by example. This word, I mean, needs to really just Any be removed from our houses. And, yeah. and I know it's just, it's it's a work in progress. All of us, all of us have to do this. And it, it's it's not that hard. I know it's something that some people are used to saying because we grew up in households like that. But it's just hard to, when you're also trying to correct somebody and they're telling you, well, it's actually a compliment because it's you're basically a slave of Allah. It's like, that's okay, not what you mean. then how about we call all Palestinians Abid? Let's call all Syrians Abid. Let's call all Pakistan. You know what I mean? You can't have that argument if, if you know firsthand that you will not call a Palestinian Abid. You know what I mean? So this is something that really we need to dismantle and we need to get rid of it within our households in this name. And I, I just commend our local mosque. I don't know if any other mosque has done this, but I really I truly commend are. our local mosque for taking action, for speaking up about this, for bringing out the community and telling them what we should and shouldn't do, how we can be allies and how we can be anti-racist. And that's incredible. And I think we need more of these conversations. I hope um, some of the jamas at the local mosque are teaching what, what she taught us today. You know what I mean? The, the history of how the black Muslims made it possible for us to even be here. Like, I hope that people are, are using that education, using the history to teach Muslims around the world that, hey, you're only here in America, you're only, you only have what you have because of the black Muslim community who, who began it all. Inshallah, we can continue to commit to action. And that was a great point, Zaina. And everything that Amanda said has really just opened our eyes. And inshallah, we can continue to go beyond our social media outlets and even beyond podcast outlets and just to actually do something behind the scenes. And like she said, small deeds that accumulate. That's mm-hmm. what Allah really favors. So let's continue this fight. Let's not stop just because maybe the protests are fizzling out. There's just so much more work to do. And let's not be discouraged by how much work there needs to be done. Inshallah, we can all come together. And inshallah, Allah is pleased with us. And he is the best of all planners. And inshallah, inshallah, we never see another murder at the hands of police brutality. And we never see another black man or black woman murdered. So thank you guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. Bye.